Hello, friends. I hope everybody's doing great today. We met our next guest on the floor at, well, you guessed it, Adventures 2022. He's a professional agrologist, a certified agriculture consultant, the author of two books, The Agriculture Manifesto and Food 5.0, and he's been tapped by the likes of Bill Gates and the FAO UN Committee for World Food Security. Woo! He's a busy guy, and we're happy to have him. So sit back, settle in, and welcome to Shift. Those of you listening, we've got Robert Sake with us today. Um, Robert, give us just give us a bit of. I, I knew you gave us a bit of background, but just give us a little bit of like where did you come from? How did all of this develop? Yeah, I think uh, you know, being born and raised on a farm northeastern Alberta, uh, I always had a, a curiosity about space. Uh, you know, uh, the the day of July twentieth, nineteen sixty nine, will go down. I was nine years old watching them land on the moon and. Uh, when I went to university, I, I was one of the first people that uh, uh, that I knew bought a computer. Um, okay. I, IBM 128K dual five and a quarter inch floppy, floppy with a <laughs> nine nine monochrome nine pin printer and a monochrome screen. So I've always been uh, fascinated by. T- I'm not a coder, but I'm fascinated mm-hmm. uh, by how we make technology work. And mm-hmm. um, and I, you know, my career has been just one of building many businesses uh, in. Everything from ag retail, fertilizer manufacturing, international distribution, uh, then the AgriTrend group of companies, uh, which was one of North America's largest consulting firms. Uh, AgriData Solution, one of the first online data platforms in the world. Uh, AgriTrend Aggregation, arguably one of the first carbon credit trading companies in the world. Um, Exited that to Trimble, served as CEO of a robotics company called DOT, and now uh, started, uh, did a startup again with a company called AgVisor Pro. Mm-hmm. And AgVisor Pro is a connectivity platform that's designed to connect a seeker, somebody seeking agricultural advice with an algorithm to an expert who can provide answers now. And so that's been my quest lately. It's like eHarmony and Uber and FaceTime and Twitter all together in one application right. for agriculture to provide answers now to agricultural seekers. Amazing! Wow, that's uh, it. Sounds very complicated and very uh, intensive. It is. Yeah, uh, it's esoteric. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came out of a six-hour meeting I had with Bill Gates on May second of seventeen, where we talked about what I built with AgriTrend, which was quite humanistic. And he said, "Well, it's very good, but it won't scale." And so I began to think about that combination of eHarmony and and Uber, Twitter, and and FaceTime all together in one yeah. app, and that's what I, we built. We built that. Let's, let, I just want to take an aside and revisit this six-hour meeting with Bill Gates. How does something like that even happen? Okay. Yeah, for, for, email for, for a kid from Ministry Alberta, you know, I remember, uh, so I did a TEDx talk. Uh, it was entitled, Will Agriculture Be Allowed to Feed 9 Billion People? And so the TEDx talk has now been seen 170,000 times. And I was walking through San Francisco airport, and I got a call from Cornell University and Cornell University asked me to open up with two lectures at their Alliance for Bioscience. And I said, I'd be honored to, so that would, that would be great. Uh, and then I said, well, how did you hear of me? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, Bill told us to watch your video. And I'm going, well, Bill who? Right. 
And they go, well, Bill Gates. And I'm going, shut up, Bill Gates watched my video. Yes, and then shortly after that, I got a call to, to visit with him along with about uh, five other entrepreneurs from around the world. So they flew in people from Africa and Australia. And we had six hours to talk and debate uh, ag and ag tech with, with Bill and uh, some of his really key thought leaders. It was uh, it was a yeah, life-changing day. That's fascinating. I can day. imagine having that sort of conversation yeah. with yeah. with people like that. Yeah, yeah, and let's dig into ag tech. What sure. is the future of agriculture? What does it look like from your perspective? Well, I mean, pragmatically, we're, we're, we're going to be facing a population of, of 9 to 10 to staring into the future, maybe 11. But let's say it's 10 billion people on the planet Earth, most of whom are going to be urban people. So the, the shift to the cities is a big deal. So you've got that first thing, 70% of the population living in the city that doesn't understand anything about agriculture, mm-hmm. yet all have, all, everybody has a vote. <clears throat> and, uh, and then you've got uh, the fact that this, uh, uh, this next 30 years means that we need to produce uh, 10,000 years worth of food in the next 30 years. Most people don't understand that. And that all areas of the all areas of the agricultural system need to produce sixty to seventy percent more food to meet that that need of of nine billion people. So so what does that look like? So you, you stare into the future and think about agriculture, and what I think about is sustainable intensification. So uh, you 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 can't feed the the population of tomorrow with the technology of yesterday. So how do we how do we grasp uh, the fundamentals, uh, the prag- pragmatism of agriculture, mm-hmm. and layer that in uh, with the technology that's coming down the pipe to make agriculture more efficient and simultaneously meet the needs of the consumer, which is more and more fussy all the time, generally not understanding what he or she is asking for, while making agriculture environmentally. Uh, uh, decreasing the environmental impact of agriculture at the same. How do you do all of that at the same time mm-hmm. and feed people better and make sure that you have global food security? How do you do all of that? So that's that's what I think a lot about. Let me add one more thing to that, and and this comes from a very personal perspective. I've got family in Saskatchewan who are farmers, yep. and the next generation, their kids are like, nope, I don't want to be a farmer. Yeah. So the other that added challenge of how do you encourage people to participate in it in that non-traditional sort of sort of way? Well, why, why do you think they have to be farmers? Why, what, and, and fair enough. So what's the alternative to it? Is it well, I, I mean, I'm Ukrainian. Both sides, my grandparents from both sides were Ukrainian, maternal and paternal. And everybody that came down, I think there were six kids in each family. Everybody was farmers. Mm-hmm. And now you flash forward uh, two generations and there's zero. I'm the closest thing uh, that there is in in those two families of of six uh, children that came from Ukraine. I'm I'm now the the only descendant that's connected to agriculture. This is this is a kind of a natural progression. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, agriculture is no different than any other industry in that economies of scale do play a major role. Mm-hmm. Uh, eco- the economics of farming are substantial. You really do have two kinds of agriculture today. One is uh, that sustainable intensification of commercial, commercial agriculture. Many of the farmers I work with are 
15 to 30,000 acres or larger in scale. They are family farms. Uh, they're incorporated and they run with employees and everything and they're, they're a family farm. And then you have uh, another group that I will call uh, the, uh, uh, the lifestyle farmers that may be closer to urban centers that have maybe 10 acres or 5 acres and they're, they're doing something. Uh, whether they're uh, playing with, uh, uh, you know, whether they're growing some uh, uh, some free-range chickens or mm -hmm. some or organic green beans or whatever, and they're selling that into the farmer's market, uh, but that's not their livelihood. And let's face it, if their chickens died or their green beans didn't make it, they would go to Costco because that's that's right. their backstop. So we we live in we live in a uh, in, in a time where. You just said to me by the nature of your question, where you would wish for a romantic notion of agriculture, where we go and are, are one with the land and everything like that. But that that's not it's not reality. Okay. What is reality then? Like, what does that look like to you? Well, reality is taking sunlight, carbon dioxide, water, through the process of photosynthesis, turning it into starch and sugars and proteins and uh, doing it in a way that's infinitely sustainable. So as long as we have human beings on the planet, who knows how long that's gonna be, but as long as we have human beings on the planet, we have to ensure that agriculture is infinitely sustainable. Yeah. So what, what makes agriculture sustainable? Well, soil health. I don't think anybody would argue with that. Water use efficiency, mm -hmm. fair enough. Greenhouse gas balance, fairly new topic, but yeah, I'll throw that in the mix. People always forget about farm viability because without viable farms, you have no sustainability. And the one that I've added lately is love. And what people in the city do not understand because they, they have this a preconceived notion that farmers are somehow destroying their land or being cruel to their animals. It's not true. Mm -hmm. Farmers love their land. They love their animals. And furthermore, I, I know lots of farms that are 100, 150, 200 years old that very nature of that length of time means that that's a sustainable business. Right. Don't tell me yeah. they don't understand sustainability. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, love and pride. I'm, so I come from a farming background. That's my family too. And, mm -hmm. and love and pride for the family farm is something that is just unmatched. So I'm glad that you added love to that. Mix. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I want to go back to, you're going to have to help me with this quote, but you, you, you mentioned it and I frantically tried to write it down. I didn't catch it. But we are trying to feed... What do we need to feed people in the next 30 years? What, yeah, you said the 10,000 years. Yeah, they, we, need yeah. To, we need to grow 10,000 years worth of food. The equivalent of 10,000 years worth of food in our human history needs to be grown in the next 30 years. Why? Tell me about well, that. We, that is because if you, look at, uh, if you look at the population curve oh, and you look at the demand of food and you look at how food was grown, how it has to be grown, uh, and, and you look at that, that population demand, um, that, that's the number. Uh, and so... Production needs to increase 50 to 60%. Call it even 40 to 50% everywhere on the planet. I'm talking everywhere. Mm -hmm. And for exporting nations like, like Canada, that the, the weight on our shoulders is even greater. Like we have to do yeah. more than 50, 60%. We have to do more than that if we're going to meet the needs of the population. Now, I have a farm in Uganda, so I'm familiar with farming in the developing, emerging economies. I've traveled extensively around the world. But there's still, there's no getting around uh, the cowboy math of agriculture. It takes 
a pound and a half of nitrogen to grow a bushel of corn. It takes 3.3 pounds of nitrogen to grow a bushel of canola. And I don't care about which religion you belong to or which farming denomination, whether you're organic or regenerative or agricultural. It's it, all the same cowboy math. You need to get that, that basic nutrients from somewhere. They have to come from somewhere. Right. Now, when you look at, at, at farming, um, and, and we're talking about this non-traditional, my romantic view of what the farmer is, there needs to be, I think, a non-traditional view of how we're eating and how we're consuming. And what I mean by that is, in my mind, uh, beef production requires a lot of, of those initial resources to go in, that, that feedstock, so to speak, grazing land. And, and the energy to have a cow that you can then turn into into meat. Is it sustainable f- having beef farms and that sort of thing to feed 10 million people? And even expanding or, on that, is the way that we eat sustainable? Yeah. Well, let, let me unpackage the beef thing first of all. So, okay. so uh, <laughs> this gets into some really interesting stuff. But the first thing I want to say is that two-thirds of the agricultural land on the planet Earth will never grow a crop. Let me repeat that. Two-thirds of the agricultural land on the planet Earth will never, ever grow a crop. It's not suitable for cropping. Okay. It's suitable for pasture. Mm. So, let's just shoot all the cows and eliminate two-thirds of the productive agricultural land on the planet. Is that smart? Hmm, maybe not. Secondly, um, the, the, the whole idea of, of, of cows... Uh, and the way that carbon is cycled. So just work with me on a simplistic picture here. Mm-hmm. Carbon dioxide is in the air. The plants take in the carbon dioxide through photosynthesis. The cows eat the grass, and they burp out methane, and the methane turns back to carbon dioxide. So how did the cows make more carbon? They didn't. They mm-hmm. recycled it. The key here is that they say that Methane that comes out of a cow burp is 27 times more greenhouse gassing than carbon dioxide. Fair enough, that's accurate. But the half-life of methane is 10 years. The half-life of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is 1,000 years. So let's square all this away. So if you put all that cowboy math into perspective, mm-hmm. the only way you really can have cattle cause more greenhouse gassing is if you have more cattle. But unfortunately, the peak of the cattle herd was 1971 in North America. So the second piece to the puzzle is there are all sorts of technologies now that can, that can be implemented uh, feedstock from seaweed, for example, that can reduce enteric fermentation or burping by 70 to 50 to 70% in livestock. So maybe we should be using that. The last piece of the puzzle is we sit here in Calgary, Alberta in this interview. And as you go West, there's one of the most fragile ecosystems in the world, the grasslands, the foothills of uh, the prairies that lead to the Rocky Mountains. In order for that grassland to be maintained, you need to have a keystone species that keeps the grass there and, and keeps the, the brush and, and, and the, the rose bushes and the poplars from taking over the grassland. That keystone species was bison. We don't have any bison anymore. So the keystone species in that very fragile ecosystem that you know that the uh, environmentalists care about the keystone species species is cattle 
So take away the cattle between here, Calgary and the Rocky Mountains, and you you lose your your, your ecosystem. Your would be right. They're gone. Yeah. Okay. So all of those things are are nuanced and all need to be stacked up together. Um, you know th- this notion that that cattle are is the new coal. You know I take real offense with that. And if you go back in and who sponsors all that? Well, that's another religion, mm-hmm. which believes that you shouldn't eat. Uh, animals. So, how much of of the anti of the, of the anti livestock movement is backed by veganism? Well, I would argue a great deal of it. How much of it is related to environmentalism? I don't know. But when you kind of think about these things pragmatically, there were eighty million bison roaming the the prairies, and those are all ruminants. There's you know how many right. In 1950, there were 25 million dairy animals in the United States. Today, there's 9 million. That's the difference. Mm-hmm. So again, stack those things up and weigh that against the the diatribe that's in the media and say, is this practical? Is this real? Or is this politically motivated for some other right. type of agenda? No, it's great food. When for you thought, when you throw religion fun. and passion <laughs> sure, into this sure. thing, yep, yep. you really start asking some interesting questions. Right. We're just going to take a wee break for some station identification and talk about some friends of ours over at Rainforest Alberta and their podcast, Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas. The Rainforest podcast showcases those who are contributing to and or supporting the innovation ecosystem in Alberta. Rainforest Alberta is a world-class community of dreamers and doers connected by a common goal of making Alberta fertile ground for building, developing, and growing innovative ideas into sustainable ventures. Now back to our discussion with Robert Sake on Shift by Alberta Innovates. Hope you enjoy. So, so we, 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 we figured out the cattle part of it, but what about the rest of it? So two-thirds of the, the world's agric- or land is uncroppable, right. right? So what do we do with the other one-third in a way that is sustainable for more people? Like, how do we get there? How do we use right. that? So that, that's, there you go with the thing I opened up with, which is called in, uh, sustainable intensification. Tell us more about that. So um, what, we, what we need to do, there, there are... Uh, uh, there are a number of uh, there are a number of competing interests. So you, you've got to make sure the soil is healthy. You've got to make sure that you use a lot of water use efficiency. You've got to make sure we don't pollute the environment at the same time. So how do we how are we going to do all of that? Um, you know, I, I would uh, you know a lot of people say, well, just go organic. Okay, well, so, all right. So we'll just reduce the use of synthetic pesticides and fertilizers and we'll all become Sri Lanka and if you don't believe me follow Sri Lanka since last April Sri Lanka's on its knees because of that policy plus there's a yield drag so that means that it takes more land to produce organically than conventional farming so that means that if you all went organic then you could just cut down more rainforest that's not sustainable so so let's let's square that away and, and furthermore uh, how do how do organic farmers control how do organic farmers control insects and diseases? How do they do it? Like, they use organic pesticides. So don't tell me mm. that organic means no pesticide, because it, of course it does. It just means that they use more organic pesticides, more frequently applied at higher doses because it's less efficacy. So what does it look like going forward? Well, I, I think the future of farming actually is geo, G-E-O. 
I think that uh, geo refers to geospatial. So as we have more geospatial engineering in farming, we can have more robots in farming. And the robotics is particularly important because manpower on the farm is very difficult to get right now. Whether you're growing greenhouses or viticulture, it's very, very, very difficult to find adequate labor. So robots, it's not an if, it's just a when will robots appear on farm. That's, that's a given. Mm-hmm. Coupled with the fact that with, with real precise geospatial engineering, we actually can know where the weed is in the field. And Precision AI out of Saskatchewan is working on this, where they fly drones across, they map out in, in very small pixels where the weeds are, and then they fly another drone and they zap the weeds in position to zap out the weeds. Another company will be running uh, robots across the land and weeding it mechanically, uh, uh, just uh, mechanically weeding uh, the, the, the weeds out as, mm-hmm. as the robot uh, cra- cra- crosses the land. So I think that we're going to see robots uh, impact uh, uh, the labor issue, impact the compaction issue of soil, and also uh, allow us to do more in the field uh, by reducing the utilization of pesticides. There's another way we can go, and that's another geo. And that is that if you want to move to more organic farming, and who wouldn't? I've never met a farmer out there that wants to spend more money on fertilizer and chemical than they need to. So therefore, all farmers would want to move more organically if they could. But I think the only way for us to get there is is genetically engineered. So I think you have to be genetically engineered organic, geo again. So you have geospatial and you have genetically engineered organic. So we have to get off our high horse and stop freaking out about GMOs and genetic engineering. All of us are vaccinated now, so we can go on a freaking airplane. That's messenger RNA technology, and yet we can't use that technology in agriculture? Give me a break. So if you want to get intensively farming in a sustainable manner that Mm -hmm. reduces uh, inputs, the only way to get there is through genetic engineering. So wake up and smell the coffee. Has to happen. Well, and we're not going to feed this growing population with traditional methods. We Can't need to innovate yeah. our food in order to be um, be able to feed all these people. Correct. Right? Food innovation is so important right now. What are you doing with food innovation specifically? Are you? Well, I think that you're going to see uh, high water containing produce move closer to the point of consumption. So more CAE uh uh, controlled agricultural environmental farming, indoor farming. So I think you're going to see more indoor yes. farming. I think you'll see that. That's like that vertical farming. Yeah. 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 yeah, vertical or horizontal, I don't know where the vertical came in. But anyways, more indoor farming uh, okay. makes sense to me. Uh, growing produce closer to the point of consumption, especially water-containing produce. And then to take the tracts of land that we have out there and, and reduce the environmental impact on those tracts of land by... Uh, implementing all sorts of technology that farmers are doing today. Like, I mean, the soil samples that are taken on the farm can be used to generate zones on the field. Those zones then can be uh, uh, used to delineate prescriptions of nutrients by zone. You load those shape files, or those RX recommendation files, into a tractor, into a controller, tied to a computer, so that as the tractor is moving through the field, it's tied to GPS from satellites, and the sections of the air seeder or the sprayer are putting on the exact amount of nutrient or spray where you want. That's going on today. You couple that with technologies such as nitrogen reduction technologies that will reduce nitrogen loss into the atmosphere. 
that's being done today. And then you couple all of that with the technologies that I saw last week in Spain that are taking extracts from plants and isolating those extracts and finding out if those extracts from plants have herbicidal, insecticidal, or disease-fighting characteristics. And all of a sudden, you have a brand new uh, crop protection regime that isn't synthetic, but it comes 100% from molecules from nature. Yeah, it's chemistry. That's fascinating. It's chemistry from nature. So this is all happening. It's all happening as we're sitting here. And we don't need to be fearful of it. I think that there's so much, um, my impression is, um, number one, you know, coming from this farming background that I have, I'm constantly told that organic farms aren't, don't produce as much yield. I don't know if that's true or not. So that's part of um, what I'm hearing. But the other part of what I'm hearing is that it's unhealthy for us to be innovating food in such a way. Why? I don't know. Yeah, that's it. Well, like you mentioned earlier, that fear of GMOs. Well, it's... Yeah, yeah, why? it's Mm -hmm. it's It's been spun. Uh, by anti, uh, by by uh, environmentalists and, and uh, NGOs that have, uh, and if you if you go back to it, a lot of it has to do with tort law. A lot of it has to do with uh, with uh, um, class action lawsuits. So if you can identify uh, and you can and you can sway the media and you can sway uh, jurors in a courtroom, then you can have a very successful class action lawsuit that can encompass billions of dollars. I mean, you. I mean, I, I don't want like. If, there's, there's a lot to unpack here, but sure. I can take you back through uh, a whole series of dominoes that leads to the impression that you would have today. Why do you have a non-GMO sticker on Catelli pasta? It's bullshit. <laughs> there are no genetically modified uh, Durham wheats on the market. doesn't exist. Why do you have a, genetic, a, a, a GMO, a, a no-GMO sticker on avocado? It's bullshit. There's no avocados that have been genetically engineered. It's, it's all marketing designed to create fear in your mind that somehow if there was... That first genetically engineered crop was papaya. Uh, papaya uh, was attacked by the rainbow uh, virus, and it was, it was called rainbow papaya now. Uh, that, that papaya was, was genetically modified with basically uh, the resistance to uh, the ring spot virus, and so your papaya industry in Hawaii today exists only because of genetic engineering. There wouldn't be a papaya industry in Hawaii if it wasn't. For so genetics. had they not done that, papaya yeah. would have been wiped gone. out and gone. And, gone. gone. and the same thing's happening to apple or to bananas right now. Your banana industry, because black cigatoga and, uh, and uh, uh, bacterial, uh, bacterial wilt in bananas... That, that banana crop is a, essentially a clone all over the world, the Cavendish banana, and there's no control right now for the diseases that are attacking it. So unless we find a cure, uh, and we're looking for a cure for citrus greening and oranges, same issue. You lose the crop. Jeez, so it's like you said, for almost for, for humans, we have the, uh, the, anti, uh, the vaccine for, the, sure. for COVID. Yeah. It's like a vaccine for the uh, Cavendish banana. And something that I, this is what I often think about is, you know, how is equity in our planet going to look in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years if we are continuing, uh, continuing to be fearful of GMOs? Doesn't that further the divide of people and our accessibility to food if we are producing less and if we're not innovating? Yeah, well, the hypocrisy... Uh, of the European Union's policies is enormous. So the European Union says we won't grow GMOs in the European Union. 
And yet 90% of their feedstocks come from Argentina and Brazil, which is all GMO corn or soybeans. So their, their livestock industry would, 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 would capitulate and fall down on its knees if it wasn't for GMOs. European Union says no GMOs in the European Union. And then they push that, they push that uh, policy down on Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, etc. Finally, the African, companies are, African countries are standing up and saying, enough of this crap. Uh, we are going to grow uh, genetically engineered uh, cowpeas to resist insects. We're going to uh, start working with genetically engineered corn to resist the fall armyworm. So we have a, a farm in, in Uganda, and we stopped growing corn. We can spray insecticide all we want to near the surrounding villages, and we can't stop this, this worm from destroying our corn crop. So we've stopped growing corn, even though they need it. Mm-hmm. We can't grow it, uh, but we could if we had a BT corn. And, uh, and BT, Bacillus thuringiensis, paradoxically, is uh, a protein that's put inside of the corn to resist the insect. That BT is an organic product, 100% organic insecticide that the organic farmers use but we can't use it inside of corn like like if we don't mm-hmm. innovate we're totally screwed is what i'm hearing here <laughs> well I, I mean but it's nothing to be fearful of i mean agriculture is always innovated if 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 it wasn't for haber bosch which i argue is the most important invention in human history so, so what is haber bosch oh haber bosch is uh the conversion of inert nitrogen like every breath you take is 78% nitrogen, every breath. It's inert nitrogen. It doesn't do anything for growing crops. But Haber-Bosch uses natural gas and high pressure and high temperature and converts that inert nitrogen into ammonia, and then that ammonia is used to produce fertilizer. Okay. And if it wasn't for Haber-Bosch, half the population of this planet Earth would be gone. Half the protein in every man, woman, and child comes from fertilizer. So people say, well, just eliminate fertilizer. Just eliminate nitrogen fertilizer. Oh, yeah, really? So which half of the planet do you choose to go? Because up until the point in time where Haber-Bosch was invented, we were relying on bird guano. Uh, we were relying on, um, on uh, bird, and, 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 and bird, and bird and bat shit uh, farmed off of the islands off of Peru. That led to the Peruvian-Bolivian War. That was the Guano Wars. I mean, this is history. This is how it all happened. The reason that we were mining the guano is because Mm -hmm. North America back in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, was running out of nitrogen. There was no nitrogen. This is Malthusianism classic. There wasn't enough resources to feed the planet. We're going to find bird poop and put it on the crop and feed the planet. What happens when the bird poop runs out? There was a competition worldwide to try to figure out how to crack the nitrogen code. Haber-Bosch did it uh, and eventually won a Nobel Peace Prize or Nobel Prize for that scientific work from those two German scientists during the war years. Uh, without Haber-Bosch, we wouldn't be alive today. Wow. Is that World War I? Uh, it would have been World War One. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's fascinating. Robert, I could literally talk to you forever. This is so fascinating. I love it. But let's circle back into inventors. Sure. What does inventors mean to you? Well, inventors is uh, is the to me is the intersection or the collision, and they, I have a, a friend who says never let leave spont- never leave serendipity to chance. So, uh, inventors to me is a lot about that. There's a lot of serendipitous stuff happening here that can never happen over a Zoom meeting. So you come together, you bring a couple thousand people, and you have these collisions that happen. 
why are they all here? Well, they're all like-minded. They're, they're from a standpoint, they're they're driven uh, to, and excited about technology and where technology can go. I just in the hallway ran into a, a guy from India that's doing NF, NFTs and tokenizations and crypto world, and I think that my product, Agvisor Pro, uh, can be tokenized and can provide an irrefutable record of uh, of, a, of a consultation between a farmer and an advisor. So these kind of things happen in, in my brain, and they happen because we we collide at an event like InVenture. So that's that's what I get out of it. This is this is what I get out of, of, of going to a place where human beings are interacting is the serendipity, the collisions. I love that. Any mm-hmm. final thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, uh, there's going to be people that will listen to this and, and uh, will vehemently disagree with what I said. And to that, I say do your own research work. Just like agriculture has been my world my whole life from the time I was farming at the age of 14 till now. And uh, I've written a couple books, uh, The Ag Manifesto, uh, 10 Key Drivers That Will Shape Ag in the Next Decade, which is about 10 years old now, and then Food 5.0, which I published in, uh, uh, in August, and Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, was August of 2019. Think about that date. The first line of the book is, this morning when you woke up, did you worry about a plague? That was eight months before COVID. The second line of the book is this morning when you woke up, did you worry about a war? And the third line of the book is when you woke up this morning, did you worry about famine? So those are first lines of three lines of the book, Food 5.0, How You Feed the Future. It's available on Amazon. And uh, and read the book. Anybody who reads that book, I, I, I wrote that book for a 30-year-old uh, single mom in Calgary with two kids who's being uh, who's fearful of food. And let's understand how food is produced and let's let's tear down the rhetoric and let's understand some of the pragmatic fundamentals and let's not be so scared. I love that. It's a great, great message. I, I do have one final one. Oh. We started, you're talking about 1969, seeing the first man land on the moon. Yeah. Now we're seeing companies take private citizens up into space. Any plans? You're bringing yep. this around? Yep. Yeah? yeah, I still think that in my lifetime I'll see space. Right on. Yeah, yeah, it's still there. I hope that for you. Yeah, yeah that totally. Amazing. That'd be totally cool. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Rocket man. <laughs> Thanks, Robert. Thank this is you. awesome. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thank you. Shift can be found online at shift.albertainnovates.ca or email us at shift at albertainnovates.ca. On behalf of everyone here, I'm John. Until next time, have a great day.